Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. It's your host, Taylor Gannis, and I am so excited to be back. I needed that break. I was very, very busy doing some things in my professional life and also in my personal life, so that break was very good for helping develop more content, really just take time for myself, Um, and I appreciate you all for being here and still amplifying the podcast. Enough of thank yous and all this stuff. I really want to get into the podcast episode. I am super excited for this episode. It's one that I'm super passionate about, and I know this will be so informative and educational for you all. So without further ado, let's get right into the podcast. So today's episode is about the ocean, something that if you know me, you know that my favorite place, my favorite thing to do is go to the ocean, be by the ocean, whatever it might be. If it involves the ocean, count me in. So today's episode, like I said, is something I'm super excited about. And this episode is specifically about the high seas and the high seas treaty. So we're going to be talking about what the high seas are, why they're so important, and what this treaty is. So today's guest speaker is the director of the High Seas Alliance. She was born on the southeast coast of Australia and is passionate about the ocean and celebrating the diverse beauty of our planet. She has an honors degree in environmental science and has been campaigning for over 20 years, primarily on ocean issues. In 2017, she established the European campaign, Our Fish, to end overfishing as action on the climate and biodiversity crisis, and has recently started as the director of the High Seas Alliance, working to protect life in the global ocean. She's based in Australia, and I am so happy and excited and honored to introduce Beck Hubbard. Let's get right into it. You know, I have a lot of amazing questions. And, you know, the first thing I really want to know is what exactly are the high seas and what's the importance of them and all that stuff? Why should people care and what are they? It's an excellent question. Uh, So the high seas are the area of the ocean that is beyond national jurisdiction. So all of the countries with the coastline manage the ocean out to 200 nautical miles. And then beyond that, it's the high seas. And that area covers around two thirds of the entire global ocean and is actually half of the planet. So it's an enormous area. It's full of incredible uh, marine biodiversity. So lots of people might look at it and just see a thin blue line. But in fact, beneath the surface, it's incredibly complex. It's full of life. Um, Billions and billions of creatures, literally thousands of species. It's uh, where whale sharks and turtles and um, seabirds and other creatures Uh, migrate across the the high seas. Uh, Loads of uh, marine life uh, lives out there permanently. And I guess it's super important for all of us, even if we've never been there, never go there or even fly over the top of it. Um, It's incredibly important because the ocean itself is critical to providing life for all of us that live on the land. So it provides around half of the oxygen that we breathe. It absorbs 
uh, around, it's the largest uh, absorber of carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, it has the largest store of organic carbon on the planet. So in terms of its capacity to help fight climate change, it's absolutely critical. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the little known facts is that uh, around 90% of the excess heat that we've generated from uh, human-induced climate change is absorbed by the ocean. So without that cooling effect of the ocean, we, uh, like the temperature on land would have would be more than 35 degrees hotter already, not just one degree, which it already is, which is bad enough, right? So it, the, the ocean is incredibly important to regulation of the climate. And um, of course, it, it supports um, livelihoods and provides food and, and that kind of thing as well. So it's, it's hugely valuable, even if you never go there. Um, yeah, so it, the high seas is actually relevant to everyone, even if you lived in a landlocked country. Yeah, I think there's so much that you just said there that's so amazing and critical for people to hear. And the last one as, as well, you know, even if you don't live on the ocean, you are impacted by the ocean, you know, and that's that's powerful and good to know for people who are listening and might not think, oh, well, the ocean doesn't impact me. I don't live on the coast. Well, it does, you know, everything is is connected and especially the ocean. Um, and I also think it's interesting, you know, hearing about in the news, I think a lot of us are seeing that the ocean temperatures are rising fast now, um, more than anyone has seen before. So thinking about how, you know, you said around 90%, I think you said of excess heat is taken in by the ocean. So that's a, a connection that I really didn't know as well until, you know, now and also reading this news. So thank you for bringing that up as well. I think that's so important and crucial to, for people to know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that's important to um, mention is that, you know, the ocean's role in in dealing with climate change and mitigating climate change, it's not just this physical and chemical reaction. Like it doesn't just, it's not just like CO2 plus H2O kind of thing. It's actually um, really dependent on a uh, what we call the biological pump in the ocean, which is all of that marine life that is moving around in the ocean every day um, because that is helping to move carbon up and down in the ocean and also move uh, moves with the currents and that kind of thing. So it's, it's actually very much about having a thriving and living ocean that's important as well, not just having, you know, a lot of water out there. Yeah. And, and that also kind of touches on what you were talking about before about, you know, I think people often think of traditional marine life as the things we need to protect, but we also forget about, you know, birds that use it. And I saw something in the news about Mexico. They're having like this huge heat wave and something with the migratory birds going over the ocean. They were finding so many birds washing up onto shore that were deceased. I'd love to hear anything about that, if you know. I haven't seen the story from Mexico, but I mean, as you mentioned, the ocean is obviously heating as a result of all of that absorption of the atmospheric heat. And um, that has huge implications for seabirds and, and marine life living in the ocean in two ways. So one is that um, the water, obviously, the heat of the water, certain species can tolerate certain 
um, temperatures, right? They live in areas that their bodies have evolved to to survive and thrive in. And when it gets really hot, some of them can't survive and they die. So you see like giant kelp forests are starting to disappear because it's too hot. Um, similarly, other species like fish and others are migrating. So they're moving to warmer, like they're moving towards the poles basically. Um, so further north or, or further south in the southern hemisphere. And that influences then the other species that depend on them for food. So this is, uh, I'm not sure if this is the specific story from Mexico with the seabirds, but for sure it's a big problem that um, there's concern around seabirds starving because either there isn't enough fish from, you know, overexploitation and or they're not in the same place where they normally feed. So it is, um, it's a complicated web of interactions, right? And you, you impact the, the one piece of the, of the web of the ocean in one place and it has flow and effects that travel around the world because species, like you say, like seabirds, they travel thousands and thousands of miles. Um, and same with, you know, some of those other really big uh, species like tunas or sharks so, and, and whales, obviously. So thank you for that clarification. Um, so kind of moving on to the next question is, what are currently the biggest threats to the high seas? You know, we talked a little bit about it with climate change, but but what what are those threats? So uh, the biggest threat um, to marine life uh, or life in the ocean has is actually has been fishing over um, historical uh, time. So even though the impact of climate change is definitely increasing. So, um, you know, acidification from absorption of CO2, um, also obviously the heating, um, but fishing, overfishing, super destructive fishing, uh, illegal fishing, um, that has really been the most comprehensive impact. But of course, there's also shipping. So, we send every time we get something sent to us from around the world most of the time or often it comes on a ship and there are a lot of ships traveling all over the ocean every day um, and they have quite a big impact on marine life um, both directly and because of their um, emissions of course there's also potential um, mining or oil and gas exploration um, and in future, there's, in, you know, going to be new threats as well. So people are talking about geoengineering or, you know, trying to store like carbon dioxide removal in the seabed and, and or other geoengineering ideas. Um, and they are potentially very serious and new threats as well. So although um, we, we haven't... Um, there's lots of parts of the ocean that we still don't know that much about. Humans have done an incredibly thorough job of really exploiting the ocean. And of course there's pollution, right? So we've dumped a lot of stuff in the ocean, not just plastics, but, um, you know, uh, other kinds of chemicals in the past and um, all kinds of, you know, um, pollutants over actually over over decades so it has really 
borne the brunt of a, of a lot of impacts from us uh, and hasn't been adequately protected. Yeah, that, that seems like a lot of things up against, you know, a massive important thing to our planet. So kind of talking about how I heard about the High Seas Treaty. So what what is that and what is the significance of that in, in protecting the high seas? So the High Seas Treaty is specifically um, a new international treaty that has been uh, developed over many, many years by parties to the United Nations. And the goal of this treaty is to protect and safeguard marine life in the high seas. So we have a UN uh, law of the sea, which is um, like over 40 years old now. And so there's a lot of gaps in the governance and protection of the ocean. It's basically the least protected area on the planet. Um, and as just discussed, you know, incredibly threatened and um, exploited. So the high seas treaty aims to fill that gap and to really bring ocean governance into the 21st century. So, it, I mean, there's a number of elements to the treaty which we can discuss, but overall it's it's the uh, a coherent and holistic framework to protect marine life in the high seas. Yeah, I, I would love to do a little bit of a, a deep dive if you have any, you know, important part. I mean, the whole thing is obviously critically important, um, but what what do you feel, you know, was something that you either didn't think would be something that was signed on to and it did and it's super important and it was a reach, but a good reach? So I think, I mean, the whole treaty is a massive accomplishment. Um, you know, we're speaking just two days after it was officially adopted by the parties to the UN, 100, over 190 parties to the UN. And that in itself is a massive accomplishment because it really does demonstrate that there is um, wide support across the globe for protecting um, this incredible uh, environment and 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 all the marine life in it. Um, so I think it, it it is a massive accomplishment, and we should all be really hopeful about that. Um, even if we are a little bit surprised, because but but it took twenty years, right, to get here. So it's it's not like it wasn't a long time coming. In terms of the key features of the treaty, I think there are four key features of the treaty um, that are that are important um, for the High Seas Alliance uh, and for many people who've worked on ocean conservation. Um, two areas are particularly um, important and exciting. So it sets out a legal framework to establish networks of protected areas on the high seas. And this is something that we haven't been able to do before now. Um, and is incredibly important because we know scientists say that we need to protect at least 30% of our different ecosystems on land and at sea to protect the full breadth of biodiversity and ensure that those ecosystems can continue to provide, you know, those really important ecosystem services that we rely on for survival on the planet. Uh, so the fact that we now have this legal framework to protect areas on the high seas is incredibly important, particularly because 
the high seas are half the planet. And so if we didn't have that, we couldn't, we couldn't reach our objectives of protecting 30% of the, of the ocean by 2030, which is what global leaders uh, just recently agreed to with the um, Convention on Biological Diversity in the Kunming Montreal framework. So that's really a big, big feature and really exciting. Um, and the other thing that it does in terms of managing those environmental impacts that we discussed, um, it gives the international community more transparency about access to information about what's happening out there and a greater say in regards to which activities are allowed and the standards which are um, applied. So it requires an environmental impact assessment on new activities and over time we hope that that will also increase the um, environmental impact assessment process and management of other activities that are already happening. So those two are the, like really big features in terms of protecting um, the the full breadth of uh, the of the ocean and all of the life in it. Um, the other two really key features of the High Seas Treaty that are important and really important in terms of equitability across the world is it ensures the fair and equitable sharing of benefits that come from marine genetic resources. So marine genetic resources are um, the genetic material of any plant or animal or creature that's found in, in the ocean. And a lot of these are used for drugs or cosmetics or potentially minerals. So they're really, um, they're really quite valuable, um, but there hasn't been any way to uh, really manage uh, either or, or share the, the benefits from those genetic resources. And, of course, some countries and some companies are much more able to access them than others. So classically developing countries have not had equal access to those genetic resources or the benefits that they bring. And so it, this is another really important thing in the treaty is that it requires, um, it sets up a process for transferring both monetary benefits, so actual money that's made from those genetic resources um, into a pot that can be used um, and accessed for the high seas benefit, but it also shares data, so non-monetary benefits. So that means that that will help to build the capacity of developing states, right? It'll give them access potentially to more research, more data, and help to bring them um, to a more uh, level playing field. And um, the last uh, kind of feature is this um, feature to enhance and build capacity and ensure the transfer of technology. And again, and, and including funding. Uh, so, and again, that's really about trying to ensure that where that because the high seas is for everybody, right? Like every citizen on the planet actually uh, benefits from the high seas, but it also has a, a stake in the high seas. So it's only fair that the treaty 
ensures that every citizen um, actually really can access those benefits and ensures that all countries can be engaged um, on a level playing field in terms of its management uh, as well. So those, um, you know, it'll ensure like the sharing of skills and tools and information um, and ensure uh, like stakeholder engagement and um, traditional knowledge inclusion. So to really try, I think that is also really um, hopeful and positive part of the treaty, which we haven't seen, which we don't have in the UN law of the sea at all um, and in lots of other areas. So I think that's that's really beneficial for everybody and really positive. Yeah, and, and I love how you added um, how, how the ocean is for everyone. It's so true. The ocean has so much. Equitability is super important for that. You know, equity is super, super crucial um, to make sure people have access to all of those things and are, are able to to get to them and to use them and have, have that access. Um, that, that's so important in everything we do, especially as an environmental movement and, and in all movements and social movements in general. Um, so, so what are the next crucial steps in actually implementing the High Seas Treaty? So the UN, establishing a UN treaty is quite a process. Um, it's, um, it takes a bit of time and, and, the main thing basically is we now have the treaty officially adopted, which is um, absolutely key and exciting. The next step is that the treaty will be opened for signing and for ratification. So now what we what we need urgently is ratification of the treaty by at least 60 countries, and then it can enter into force. So until that moment, uh, it doesn't really apply. So next step is getting at least 60 countries to ratify the treaty. And we're really pushing for uh, the, um, what's called the the High Seas High Ambition Coalition of 52 countries who have kind of committed to to the treaty and really been champions of it. We're really pushing for those uh, countries to lead the way in ratifying the the treaty. and and supporting other countries to ratify as well. And then once those 60 countries have ratified, uh, essentially it starts a a countdown and then 120 days later, the treaty will enter into force. And from then on, other countries can, well, other countries can continue to ratify and should we really want to see universal ratification. So all of the parties to the UN to ratify. but it can take a little bit of time because it's a process where they need to ensure their national laws are consistent with the new international law. So once um, we have the treaty entered into force, which we're hoping will happen by 2025, the end of 2025, then there will be a conference of the parties and that will be where this... um, essentially where the decisions start to get made and that's where countries can propose marine protected areas or or where other assessments or decisions will be taken on the high seas. So um, at the same time as getting countries to ratify, 
we also um, are looking for countries to start proposing marine protected areas or working on their development of marine protected area proposals because they can take a while to develop as well. Um, and there's a bunch of committees and things that need to be set up uh, just to help the treaty operate going forward. So those things will be kind of established over the next uh, couple of years as well. So there's a few things happening, but the main thing is really that we get countries to sign and ratify the treaty as soon as possible, and ideally by June uh, 2025. Right, so so it, we need it to be ratified and we need you know a push for that, right? We need a lot of support from people, um, on every level, on the community level, grassroots level, all of that stuff, it's really important. So, you know, we also need organizations to step up and support as well. So can you talk a little bit about the mission of your organization, the High Seas Alliance? I'd, I'd love to hear about the work um, that, that you all do there. Absolutely. So the High Seas Alliance is an alliance of 50 plus NGOs, plus the uh, IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And we have members across the globe. And our goal really is to protect life on in the high seas. So the mission is grand. Um, and what we do is we coordinate um, among the groups. We have a really active and incredibly uh, both expert and passionate um, group of, of organisations that work to um, support the establishment of this treaty. So that can be through um, public campaigns in their countries to raise awareness around the high seas and why it needs to be protected and, and, getting, it, and getting the treaty um, ratified but it can also be providing expert knowledge like policy and technical knowledge because, you know, there's a lot of legal text and a lot of technicalities that go on um, behind uh, closed doors in terms of treaty development and and making sure that this agreement, um, yeah, delivers on its, on its objectives to protect that biodiversity and share the benefits from marine genetic resources. So... Um, we the alliance is open to for other organisations to join, um, and and then essentially we have groups of people working, uh, as I said, around the world uh, to to really advance the the high seas treaty. And our focus would really strongly be in the next two years on getting those countries to ratify. Um, so supporting governments and and building that public awareness. And, um, and then getting the institutions and the committees and things set up so that we can, uh, as soon as it enters into force, we can start protecting life in the high seas. Yeah, and it's amazing that you have over 50 organizations that are, are members, you know, that shows, like you said before, um, their support globally for this, their support globally for the high seas. It's something that is in demand and is needed. Um, and like you also said, every voice matters. You know, everyone has a different perspective. Um, everyone's coming in from a different lens and a different angle that they might be able to provide something that we might not see or that policymakers overlooked or, you know, all these things. And it's 
from all the conferences I've gone to, you know, I go in with my perspective and I always come out with a completely new perspective. And I think it's important, you know, that, that organizations and that treaties all, you know, are receptive of that. And it seems like with the high seas treaty and all this stuff that, that that's starting to happen. And that's a good sign. Um, so had a follow-up of can organizations sign up and become members? So where can they do that? If, if they want to do that, if someone's listening now, how can they do that? So the best place to go is to the website and then it's got our contact details there, but you can find out more about how we work and you can access updates and, and see the resources, but it's, the website is highseasalliance.org.org. So it's really easy to remember. Um, and, uh, or you can just Google High Seas Alliance and you'll find it really easily. Um, uh, and, and there people, our contact details are there and people can, can get in contact with us. And as I said, there's uh, updates. We just had a, a webinar recently last week um, with representatives from our member organisations around the world talking about the treaty and the road to ratification um, as well. There's a lot of other resources there about the kinds of areas um, that we'd like to see protected in the first wave of high seas MPAs. So plenty of information there for people to, to find out more and also to get in contact to join the Alliance. And we're, we'd love more members to join um, and especially like from the entire planet because we're talking about the, the whole ocean. Yeah, perfect. And I will link the website in, in the description as well. So if anyone missed that, um, it'll be written as well. So you can just easily click on it. Um, so, you know, you answered this, uh, this question a little bit as well, but how can people who are listening to the podcast support the protection of the high seas and the Alliance? Uh, I know that they can sign up to become, um, is it members or just to, to be supportive of it? So we don't really have an exact membership in terms of individuals, but for sure um, people can follow. We've got, you know, we're on Twitter and all of the social platforms and Instagram and, and whatnot so people can follow us on social media. Um, also there is uh, on one of our partner organisations, Only One, so only.one, they have a petition that is open that's for supporting the High Seas Treaty. But if you sign up to that, they will also keep people updated in terms of the progress on the on the High Seas Treaty and we'll continue to work with them uh, through the ratification because, you know, um, now that it's formally adopted, uh, it will be opened for signing and ratification in September this year. And then we'll really be tracking which countries are making progress, which ones have signed, and then which ones have ratified. They have to sign first. Uh, so it'd be great to have people following us on social media, also signing up to the Only One petition, because there'll be plenty more activities for people to get involved in as we start to work in the countries to get them to ratify. Great. That's wonderful. And I'll put, again, all that information for people who are listening um, to be able to just easily click it. And I have one last question that I always love to ask, you know, what gives you hope in terms of ocean protection? I mean, the resilience of, of the ocean and its, and its 
power and diversity gives me hope, I guess. Um, I mean, the actual environment itself gives me hope. And that's what um, drives me to continue this work always. Uh, and whenever I feel like even slightly overwhelmed by it all, which does happen over many, many years of working on these issues, um, I just take myself back into the environment. So I go to the beach or I go surfing or I go and sit under a tree or just sit in the dirt, you know, like really just try and really notice um, each of those critical parts of the of nature that are around us and really just celebrate their beauty. I think that's that's what gives me hope. Yeah, I love that. And I, I totally feel that I'm new and not new into the field, but, you know, I'm just starting my professional journey and, you know, it's hard. <laughs> it's overwhelming. And even for people who aren't, I know a lot of people who aren't, um, you know, working in this field and still get overwhelmed. Um, and, and nature is the best. I don't, I don't want to, I want to say medicine, but it's the best healer, right? And, and it is kind of medicine as well. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate that perspective. And I totally feel that, that it gives me a lot of hope just to go out and, and be in it. I'm living in a, a city now, so it's definitely harder to go out and enjoy it, but, but there still is pockets of it and there still is hope for it. Absolutely. All you have to do is look up to the sky. Like literally even, you know, I remember I was in Madrid during lockdown and in, a, in an apartment and we were not allowed to leave the apartment except to buy food for nine weeks, not even to exercise, just to buy food. And we had this tiny little balcony and every day I would sit on this tiny little balcony <laughs> um, and just look between the buildings up to the sky. And that in itself is actually incredibly hopeful I mean we just need to remember to celebrate the beauty wherever we can see it and find it and you can always find it because it even in a city you can find it yes nature definitely does does persist um and, and I appreciate that and bringing that up um is is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we wrap up no I don't think so I just hope that everybody gets on board and follows the High Seas Alliance and and really starts to um, talk about the High Seas and the High Seas Treaty and, and, and share how exciting this is because I think, you know, half of the planet, like we finally have the opportunity to protect and better manage half of the planet, the, the critical thing that keeps us all alive and thriving. So, yeah, I look forward to more people being engaged yeah that that is very powerful last few words you said no originally but I'm glad I'm glad you said that because it is it's very true when you think of it like that you know it's half the planet it's something that you know it hasn't been protected and it needs to be protected um so thank you thank you for that and thank you for coming onto the podcast and sharing all of this knowledge it really is super beneficial and I really hope people listening do go out and and follow and support you know the alliance and your partner organizations. I, I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much for having us, Taylor. <laughs>